Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures in the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Karen Morrow, Professor of Environmental Law and Dr Victoria Jenkins, Associate Professor in Environmental Law, both here at Swansea. Karen's research focuses on public participation in international environmental law and policymaking, and Victoria explores the connections between law, policy and governance in the environmental context, especially in relation to local and Welsh issues. Karen and Victoria, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank, Thank you very much. So to kick us off, could you both tell us um, what your research is about, just kind of in a nutshell? So Karen, to start with. Uh, okay, I um, look at various dimensions of involving people in environmental decisions. Um, there tends to be a perception that a lot of environmental issues are very technical, very scientific, very political, but all environmental problems are ultimately people problems in one way or another. And at different levels of governance, and Victoria will speak to uh, the, the local and Welsh dimensions, there are distinctive uh, challenges in getting people's voices into the room. So I look at that particularly in the context of um, global climate change issues and to a lesser extent sustainability thinking. Great, lots to unpack there, which we'll do in a moment. Uh, Victoria? So I started out looking at sustainable development and legal approaches to sustainable development, um, but more recently I focused on sustainable land management and landscape. And so I'm interested in how we take these sort of con complex concepts and then bring them into law and how law can respond to those challenges. And my work, as you said, it focuses on the local level. So I've always been interested in local government and the responses there. And then also Welsh government. So since devolution, I've been particularly interested in being in Wales in the way that the Welsh government responds to these sorts of issues. Great. So something from the outset there, which I'm thinking about, is we've got global and then more local. So just just sort of addressing that for a second, how, how do those two different approaches differ and how would you say sort of looking at each other's work how obviously there's loads of synergies and overlaps here but what what, what are the your, your slightly different approaches to all of this okay there is a horrible neologism <laughs> that's used to describe environmental issues glocal um oh, no. and i don't like it <laughs> on a linguistic level but actually in a descriptive level it's perfect because there is a context here it's very rare in legal um context for what's international what's regional what's national what's subnational, what's local, to actually sort of fit into uh, any sort of um, coherent whole. But in environmental law, there's more of an argument for that than um, in most areas. And uh, it's such a huge range of activities that we're talking about here that's absolutely impossible to uh, deal with everything. So one of the things I really love about working with Victoria is that we have quite different knowledge, but a similar sort of perspective that locks together in many ways. I'm yeah, so my work is really about, you know, although I'm looking at what happens locally and what happens in a Welsh context, ultimately those things are connected to what has been agreed at an international level. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have global agreements, as I'm sure most people are aware, on climate change and biodiversity. So what I'm looking at is how that translates at these more local and, and regional levels within the country. And obviously then I also would take into account what happens at the UK level and and beyond. But, you know, it's about how you take this and translate it into action on the ground. And my more recent work has been with um, peat scientists looking at peat protection. And so that's, you know, that's also connecting then to what practically happens on the ground and what are the influences on the work that's happening in terms of conservation. 
Mm. I suppose the idea, the concept with this local thing, which is a new one for me, I'm always, always learning, is that, you know, with something even just like, say, air quality or whatever, it's, it's, there aren't, there aren't boundaries and borders, are there? So things can happen across kind of borders. So actually what, what can be a local concern can be sort of a globalised local thing. I suppose, is, is that sort of getting to the heart of one of the issues here? Yeah, the environment doesn't really understand borders. Borders mm. are a nice convenient human construct, but uh, pollution in Swansea mm. contributes to pollution in Wales, contributes to pollution in Ireland, depending on prevailing winds. Sure feeds into a global, um, uh, glo- European and global uh, context. So very literally, yeah, mm. they, they dovetail. The land management issue and the, and the peat stuff that you were talking about a minute, there, a minute ago there, Victoria, can you say a bit more about that? So recently I've been involved in a project which is looking at sustainable peat management at the local level. So what could be the role of local authorities in trying to support peat management? So we, uh, the Welsh Government has significant targets on um, sustainable peat management and in particular peat restoration. And the question is how we're going to meet those targets. Um, at the moment, a lot of emphasis is on what's happening um, from a national perspective. So our environment agency for Wales is called Natural Resources Wales. So the focus is on what they can do in terms of restoring um, peat. But my project has been looking at, you know, as I say, what what, what we could do much more locally in this respect so peatland management is really important because peatlands can deliver multiple what we would call ecosystem benefits. So they can contribute in terms of climate change by well, sustainable peatland management can ensure that the carbon that's um, contained within peat is maintained. So, for example, if there's a wildfire on a peatland, it will release a huge amount of carbon. So that's a, a really big uh, problem. Also, if we restore or maintain those peatlands, we can contribute to flood prevention because they are very significant wetlands. Um, and those are the things that you know law and policy tends to focus on, but they can also be really significant in terms of ecosystems resilience. So they don't support necessarily a huge and diverse range of different species, which is what we would want in terms of biodiversity, but they do support significant, a small number of significant species. And like I say, they're really significant in terms of ecosystems resilience. And then there are the cultural benefits as well. So recreation and just the fact that peatlands, in particularly in Wales, are a really significant part of our landscape. Well, I was just going to ask about that. Where are some of these peatlands, either locally or, or where are some of the big ones in the UK? So peatlands cover about 4% of Wales. I, my, my research focuses on Wales. Um, so it cover about 4% of the land in Wales. Most Mostly we find them in the uplands, but obviously most of Wales is uplands. So there's significant areas there, but there are also some very significant smaller areas of lowland peatland in Wales, um, which you would find often are protected in, uh, through our, our legal systems. And so you might sort of colloquially call them nature reserves. Oh. So there's a very significant one next to the university, actually. Um, there's a significant peatland there that's called Kremlin Bog that's actually a protected area. Great. Can I just chip in yeah, there, actually, course. because this is an area where our work actually just turns out to overlap. Um, I'm currently acting as deputy chair of the Welsh um, Net Zero um, advisory group, which um, is formed part of the... Um, under the agreement between uh, Plaid Cymru and the Welsh Government to provide expert um, independent advice on how to get to net zero. And just this week, we'd been having a meeting um, where we were talking about the um, Climate Change Committee's 2023 report 
on progress in Wales thus far. And one of the areas where uh, the um, uh, independent advice there was pointing to the need for Wales to do more in an area that is within Welsh competence is peatlands. So we were actually just discussing that earlier today. It's um, something that has huge local significance, um, but actually feeds into what we're doing as a nation in Wales, how that's contributing to what the UK is doing globally as well. We've we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, and I've always put sort of a, I guess, a devil's advocate position to certain um, guests, and we've talked about things like net zero and climate change, and said when when some of the main players in, in on the global stage, you know, your your China's, for example, but to an extent the the USA as well, are not committed to nearly as kind of stringent net zero targets as as we are. Is what Wales does even is what the UK does making any difference at all? Yes. In, in uh, short terms. Now, first of all, China is a very different kettle of fish from the US in mm. terms of what mm. it's doing. Um, but the most interesting um, activities in fighting climate change on a global basis aren't actually helping uh, happening at the international law level at all. It's mostly at um, city level, small nation level, state level. And there's a tremendous cooperation globally between those subnational tiers of government that is very creative, shares good practice, and is is actually making a difference in real terms. So one of the things with the international climate change regime is it can be very, very depressing to deal with for obvious reasons. You know, it, it moves very slowly. It gets uh, trying to achieve agreement is um, incredibly difficult. And that often masks the very good work that's actually being done on the ground. It brings us back to the idea that what's happening on the ground may not often get the headlines, but that's where the differences are actually happening. And you think there's that there are tangible differences that are going to be made here? I mean, I'm just think, thinking if there's not, if, if, if I don't know, for example, China is continually opening loads of coal-fired power stations, then is what happens on city level in smaller countries going to really make a difference to the, the big picture? Everything makes a difference. And at this point, we have run out of options for pointing the finger and saying it's somebody else's problem to deal with. Uh, China is improving on uh, a number of fronts. One of the most interesting things people might not be aware about in uh, China is that they actually have made environmental law a mandatory part of the law degree in China uh, about five years ago now. And you can actually see that's actually changing, certainly academic work coming out of China and um, changing the willingness of Chinese academics to network and to publish outside of China. So it's it's actually something that sounds very abstract and very academic is actually making a difference to that interfacing with the rest yeah, of the world on this. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I suppose the cynic would say it could be just all talk and no action potentially. You could, but uh, looking at what China is actually doing, um, the scale of what China is doing means the coal looks terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, that will anywhere. But um, so much hydro and other things uh, as well. Lots of work on renewables too. So the picture is a lot more complex than the headlines maybe convey. Yeah, as always. Um, sticking with you for a minute, Karen, uh, your work focuses on gender as well, doesn't it? Now, obviously, mm -hmm. we might not necessarily think of there being a direct link between what we're talking about and gender, but obviously for you there is. Yes, I work in an area known as ecofeminism. And ecofeminism, as you might guess from the name, brings together ecology and feminism. And what it points to is the idea that um, very exploitative approaches to our world, to treating nature as a resource to be 
used, spat out and disposed of, uh, is also um, an approach that extends to people and people not in power, including women. Uh, women are very underrepresented in law, politics and policy at all levels, uh, all over the world. Um, people who are not in power uh, are often on the re receiving end of a lot of the adverse impacts that treating the environment badly creates. So there's a big overlap there. And it's not just women who are excluded, people of colour, uh, people with disabilities, the elderly, the young. Uh, basically, if you're not part of the in-club, um, you don't really have a voice in terms of how things are being done. It's not just about our politics, it's about our business and industry as well, which is male-dominated and male-led. It's about science. Again, male-dominated and male-led. Uh, great example there, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change only realised or recognised rather that it had a gender problem in 2018, which is quite shocking. You know, this shouldn't be news. Um, women's rights have been an issue since uh, in the UN since its inception. So, you know, 70 odd years ago. So it's something that seems to need to be rediscovered or discovered anew in every context. Um, and those voices, those people who are shaping the science, who are shaping the industry, who are shaping the politics, do it in their own image. And they do it very often with the best of intentions, not always, but often with the best of intentions without realising that that is what they're doing. But without that level of reflection and without bringing those other voices into the room, you end up with a system that just works in its own interests and perpetuates what we've always done. What we've always done has brought us to a pretty worrying situation. We need to do things differently. And this eco-feminism um, label term, I guess. Is this, is this something that you're, you're keen to actually promote as a term and as an idea? It's a really interesting term because um, it initially was greeted with great enthusiasm, but uh, was very quickly um, criticised for a lot of reasons, for being too white, being too Western, being essentialist, meaning that mm. um, some very early eco-feminists tended to think, you know, it's a matter of biology that made women closer to nature. Oh, but yeah. that's actually not where most ecofeminism is now. Most ecofeminism now is it's social ecofeminism. So it's actually based on the idea that uh, it's not your biological sex that determines your uh, relationship to the environment or to anything else. It's where you're placed in society. It's power structures. It's the ability to have a say in governance and government. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking about that. I guess for some people who might uh, need to be convinced of certain elements of environmental policy, they might see, I don't know, the environmental stuff is a bit, I guess, to put it bluntly, is left-wing, and then they also think of like feminism as also like a left-wing cause, and then the coupling of those together might not be unhelpful in bringing other people on board. I don't know mm. what you think about that. Outside, of, acad outside of, of academia, I think, yes, particularly, we're if, talking If you yeah. think equality is left-wing, <laughs> although actually well, equality... Well, do, yeah. Yeah, but actually equality is a foundational value in all value systems, uh, regardless of political orientation. Probably the thing that makes ecofeminism most interesting and most useful, and actually does draw people in, I think, is the fact that it combines theory and activism. So it's not all just about people like me sitting writing abstruse volumes of uh, well, never, never uh, sure. critical theory. It's actually, it's, it has always worked with activists and activism and bringing those ideas of this thinking about how you treat people, how you treat the environment, how inequalities and problems tend to overlap and tend to work in concert with each other to aggravate problems, but actually then looking at solutions, particularly grassroots solutions to make that better. 
Have you got some thoughts on this, Victoria? Yeah, it does connect very much with what I look at, which is in terms of local sort of policy and governance and the delivery of ecosystem benefits to local communities. Often, as Karen said, those benefits are not equally distributed. Um, and so there can be, you know, different impacts on different communities. Um, and I'm particularly interested in the way that those benefits are felt by disadvantaged communities, which is a particular issue <coughs> perhaps in Wales in some some places, you know. Yeah, because so when, when you say disadvantaged communities, what, what are you thinking of in particular? So I'm thinking about those communities who would be um, considered to be disadvantaged according to the multiple index of deprivation. But also my work looks at the way that those communities can also benefit from their natural and cultural heritage in a way that perhaps we don't actually um, consider sufficiently in uh, law policy and governance so that what what we consider to be a disadvantaged community, maybe we need to reconsider in relation to issues around uh, the natural environment. We started this discussion by talking about uh, this being a people problem, and I think that's very intriguing and and, and, uh, and a very interesting way of approaching this. Should we say more about that, um, Victoria, about this kind of very people-focused approach? Yeah, I think it's really important that the connections between people and nature, because ultimately people will only want to protect those things that they consider to be important to them. And I think this has come really very much to the fore um, after the COVID-19 epidemic because as we know that was the point at which a lot of people started to connect with nature mm -hmm. and also to connect with nature on their doorstep rather than thinking perhaps about global problems and it then helps them to make the connections between those local and global issues that you know the connections that we've been talking about so i think it's vital really this relationship between people and environment mm -hmm. um you can't you can't adopt just as Karen said, technical solutions to these problems, or I don't believe that you can. You you have to take communities with you. They have mm -hmm. to understand the significance of the work that you're doing. And ultimately, the the work that I do in terms of looking at, look at in terms of sustainable land management um, focuses very much on changing landscapes. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to you know introduce interventions that are going to change those landscapes that people value for for, for cultural reasons, for example then you need to take those communities with you. They need to understand why you're doing it and what impact it's having and what benefit it's having um, to, the, to them. So, yeah, absolutely, it's it's really, really important. I think this leads me on to something I'll, I'll post to both of you, which, I, again, we've spoken with other guests about. And it does relate to what you said, I think, Victoria, which is that it's it's a very different kettle of fish, isn't it, say, talking to someone about the air quality in their, in their local town or about perhaps a, a row of trees on their street that they like and maybe might get cut down versus very big, what might seem to some people quite abstract, uh, uh, sort of unfathomable things about climate change or whatever. So how do you, yeah, how, how, how do you approach that and address that sort of almost micro, macro situations? Well, that's where social scientists and lawyers, et cetera, have a role to play. Climate yeah. change started off as very technical. Um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's work in its initial phases was almost entirely hard science-based. Now that's changed and right from the very highest level, this idea that psychology, uh, communication, narratives even, telling the stories of climate change are actually really important for bringing people with you. Uh, for something like air pollution, it's a great example of actually something that has really dire impacts on people's everyday life, 
but actually feeds directly in sure. to climate change. So if you can make those stories relevant to people and you can show that their experience is part of that bigger whole, it makes it much easier to identify with these these broader narratives, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and I guess this is an argument for what everyone in academia does talk about, isn't it? Which is getting out of your silo, um, doing interdisciplinary work, working with colleagues, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and the work that I do, like I say, I've been working with peat scientists because I need to understand, you know, I didn't understand a year or two ago anything about what peat was or why it might be uh, interesting to people, what, what benefits it might bring to people. So to understand that, you really need to work with scientists and you and to understand what we need to do to ensure sustainable peatland management for the future. So once you can understand that, then you can bring your legal knowledge to play to say, okay, so does the law support that? Is the is the law actually creating a framework connecting with policy? Because obviously the two can't really be distinguished. And so are those are our law and policy really creating a framework that's going to support that into the future? You know, what do we need to see? And um, this is a really, like I say, like all of the issues that we look at, they're really complex issues. And we need to have a really good understanding of them before we can move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary research is really, really important. And I think that's the way that research is moving these mm. these days. I mean, in some ways for us, it's it's the natural norm in environmental law because environmental mm. law is yes, well, entirely related <laughs> to science, but also increasingly to social science, even to the arts. All of these things are interconnected and the problems that we face with the, the UN calls it the triple environmental crisis um, are such that we need to bring all of our agency as humans, all of our talent, all of our understanding together and try to make these things work as mutually reinforcing rather than separating. And one of the things we've both worked at, I think, in our career very hard is um, scientific literacy. And that doesn't come naturally to you if you've come from a legal uh, educational background. I think we've both educated ourselves in our, our various areas. I would not claim to be a climate scientist, but I understand the basics. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because typically people doing law or people like doing arts and humanities like me, we're, we're, we're a world away from scientific jargon and understanding, but, you, but you've actually delved into some of the literature in, in that area. Yes, and I actually teach it as well. Right. I actually start my environmental law modules uh, off with looking at a scientific paper on planetary boundaries theory, Planetary Boundary Series, very cutting edge about um, climate change, biodiversity, the phosphate cycle for fertilisers, water cycle, etc. It's looking at all the things we need to be within safe limits for us to flourish as a society globally. And the students find it very challenging, uh, but we do it at a fairly basic level. And it's to break down that, that conceptual barrier that you just look at the law books and that's all you need to actually think about in this area. So, you know, we, we, we'll look at it and I'll actually ask them to me and say, right, well, of the nine planetary boundaries, what are your top three? Why? And that actually takes it from being something very abstract to something that, as lawyers, that's the sort of information um, uh, digestion that we do all the time, prioritising, cutting down arguments to their basics, etc. And um, then we're getting them to make a case for their arguments. It works really, really well. And it's, sorry, it's not just science either, you know, so if, so I look at landscape and law, so to understand the relationships between landscape and law, you actually have to understand landscape, which is a lot of it's cultural geography. So it's not just science that we connect with, like you say, it is social science as well. Yeah. 
you've brought some props, uh, some things with you. So do you, want, do you want to tell us what they are? So this is my um, mug with a peatland on the front of it oh, from yeah. Peatland Conference, because most of my research is about peat. Um, and then this is a little Welsh dragon because my research focuses on uh, Welsh devolution. And it also reminds me that um, not only am I an academic, I'm a mother of three children. So I brought that with me. Has the dragon got a name? Uh, no, he's just a draigor. He looks like he's been around quite a lot as well. He looks kind of he has uh, been around well, for well, a very well long time. Very nice. Um, um, what have we got here? Right. This is an example of craftivism. Ah. Um uh, an academic from the University of Reading a few years ago came up with what's become a very uh, famous image now, the climate stripes. And various craft groups worldwide have knitted the climate, climate stripes. This is a century of global temperatures. And you will note the present is very dark red. Do you want to give me one end? Yeah. <laughs> the past oh. is much bluer where the temperatures were much lower. We so go. you can really graphically see how global temperatures have improved, or not improved, have uh, well, God, changed yeah. over year over. I'm on the hot. I'm years. on the warm end. <laughs> hot stuff. <laughs> I think blokes do run hotter as well, so that's kind of quite <laughs> appropriate, isn't it? Cool. Thank you for bringing them in. Now I know that you've both spoken about doomism narratives. Um, what does that mean? Bunny in the headlights. Um, you know, climate change is with us already. It's too late to stop it. Um, that is a very worrying thing to know and to take on board and to really um, understand. But, and the but is really important here, that doesn't make what we do insignificant. In fact, that makes everything we do significant. Everything counts. So doomism is this idea, there's no point in doing anything about it. Climate change is with us already. We're all doomed. It's all going to happen. Yes, climate change is with us already. But we have a lot to um, offer in terms of um, ameliorating the adverse impacts of climate change. So it can be a lot less bad than um, a doom uh, accepting perspective would uh, uh, make it. And law develops very slowly, doesn't it? So, you know, we have to be thinking now about mechanisms that we're going to need to adapt to climate change. Mm. So, you know, we are starting to look at climate change mitigation and what, you know, what we can do in terms of flood prevention and wildfire prevention, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's and, and law academics have been doing that for quite some time now. So it's, it's anticipating the problems that are going to arise. Yeah. I was going to ask this because I know, I know you're not hard and fast scientists, even if you're dabbling in, in lots of it, but the, the language is often, isn't it, about battling climate change and fighting it and all this kind of stuff. But what about what about a more nuanced perspective, which says, like you say, adapting to it or even actually using emerging technologies to actually mitigate things as as they happen? Is there a is there a subtler approach here, or or are you still both actually on the on the side of no, this is very serious and we need to be pushing back almost? <laughs> The battling um, analogy, we use it a lot in society. It's a very male analogy, uh, I would say, as a gender <laughs> oh, scholar. Oh, dear. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, I, and I brought it up. There we go. <laughs> um, but it's it's the sort of language that, that male politicians use to mobilise the population. Um, it's also the sort of thing we use in medicine. One of my pet hates is oh, battling cancer. cancer. Yeah, no, you right. have cancer. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not somehow cooperating with it if you don't recover. So I don't think it is the most positive way of putting it. Uh, in uh, ecofeminist thought, the idea for the ethics of care 
is uh, my preferred way of looking at it, which is uh, a relational ethic in how we uh, deal with each other as humans and how we deal with the environment around us. And the idea being that you know, we care for vulnerable humans, um, not because they can do anything for us, but because they deserve care. Not quite the same with the environment. Yes, there are vulnerable environments that we do need to care for, but ultimately the vulnerability there is much more interesting and nuanced because we are also vulnerable to an environment that we don't care for. But there's a different way of looking at it that is more relational. That is a really good way of putting it. How do we relate to the environment? How does that affect how we relate to each other? So that's how I would look at it. But Tori, you may have a different view. No, I don't think so. I think, you know, I would agree with that. Um, it's not something that I sort of look at uh, significantly in my work, but I would say that that was a, a much more healthy approach to it. Mm. Now, work like the, the stuff that you do obviously involves lots of collaboration and working not just within the academic sector, although I'm sure you do with other colleagues and other institutions, but also with bigger organisations, NGOs, government uh, and for you, Victoria, it, it, I, I believe it's the Welsh government in quite a lot of scenarios, isn't it? You, we have spoken about this. So do you want to say a little bit more about the actual process of collaborating and working with these, these other groups? Yeah, so I think um, in the last few years in particular, I have um, engaged more with organisations from outside the university. And I find it really helpful in the sense that it really helps to inform the research that you do and helps to ensure, you know, the greater quality to what you're producing because you are you are recognizing problems that exist in you know actually exist out there and you can think about your responses to them it's also very challenging because ultimately you are an academic so our, our role is not just to think about what can be achieved within current governance systems but what might be achieved um that sort of blue sky sort of thinking that perhaps those organizations themselves aren't always involved in and also it's, you know, we we operate very differently as organisations um, over different timescales, particularly if you are doing something that involves government, their timescales are very short in comparison to academic timescales. So that can, that can be very challenging. But like I say, it's really, I think overall, it's it's um, very, very important to do this, to get out there and to speak to people who are actually involved in, you know, you know, either they are part of government or they're lobbying government or, you know, they're they're working with government, you know, to to because ultimately we're all working towards the same objective um in terms of trying to um achieve you know greater environmental protection in Wales. So yeah, that's the those are the organizations that I would I would connect with. And obviously there's loads of opportunities in there, but I'm but I'm getting a sense that there are big frustrations as well and that, that timeline issue is obviously a a, a thing. Yeah, I think it is. And I think anybody who's been involved in, in doing any of this kind of work will will say that because as, as an academic, you want to make sure that everything that you're doing is is very much grounded in research that you have confidence in and you want to check out every single possibility. You know, you want to make sure that you've looked at every single angle and this takes an awful long time. And yet, if your work is going to have an impact in terms of policy making, those policies are developed over a much shorter time scale. So you have to adapt really to that. And and it can, like I say, it can be it can be really very difficult. It's it's also a different way of writing because obviously you you write documents for these audiences and they're very different audiences. Um, and so you know I have to resist the temptation to put 
hundreds of references in work <laughs> because it just wouldn't make sense then to that to 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 that audience. So you have to, you know, you have to adapt to that and and actually each of those audiences is quite different. So if you're writing something that is for non-governmental organizations that might look very different to something that you are writing for government and and that's yeah that's a real challenge as well mm. what about you Karen um i do a little bit of this sort of thing so i was on the hinkley uh, advisory group uh, so that's a very cross disciplinary group with uh, um fishery scientists nuclear scientists um public health Wales and various other uh, actors involved in it, and and this is in relation to the Hinkley Point nuclear, the Hinkley Point power, station, nuclear yes. power station, and that was a really interesting process because I joined that group quite late in the day and was then sort of providing legal prescriptions for the various problems that had been raised, um, and there is a real challenge in explaining what law can and can't do, even to other professionals, um, because our perspective on it is quite different. Um, uh, and uh, I think helpful. It's challenging to do, but it makes it very, very interesting. I'm without really drilling down here, I mean, what kind of stuff or what kind of advice or discussions are you having in these groups? Just give me a, give me a working right. example of well, what you do there. One of the, Hinkley's a great example. One of the problems there is post-devolution, communication between the Welsh and the English sides of the border, um, which can mean that decisions are being made by English authorities that don't necessarily take into account Welsh law and Welsh environmental law is now quite different mm. from English environmental law. So there, um, because I came to environmental law through public law, um, I was able to look at administrative law and the concept of a memorandum of understanding. And what a memorandum of understanding is, is a, a sort of a, almost like a contractual agreement between, say, Natural Resources Wales and Wales and the Environment Agency in England, now that they're separate, that actually lays out a particular area where they need to work across the border and sets out in a publicly available document, the terms of engagement. And those needed to be updated uh, post-devolution, um, hadn't really been. So Hinkley provided us with an opportunity to actually feed that in. Mm. So that was one of the things we recommended that actually was was acted on. Interesting. Uh, in both your cases, you're obviously working on topics that, that matter a lot to you, but you recognise that there are big societal, global even, implications to what, to what you're doing. How much or to what extent does that have an impact on you personally and on your lives when you leave the office? Well, I do try as far as possible to, you know, to to live the life that I am promoting in the sense that, you know, to be, uh, to, to adapt the way, you know, that I shop, the way that I live to 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 make simple changes for environmental protection you know so there's a lot of information out there about how you can take shorter showers to use less water um how you can um have a water butt in the garden you know just simple things like this and you know buy less clothes don't throw things away until they're actually broken <laughs> or need to be replaced i think Buying less is probably one of the strongest messages in terms of environmental protection. So, you know, I do try as far as possible to adopt that in terms of my own lifestyle, but also I do try to ensure that my children would also follow, you know, that approach. It's more difficult to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to get them to buy less things, but um, yeah, definitely, I think. Same. Climate grief is a real thing and actually it's mentally wearing and difficult to work on these in these areas 
and can be very, very discouraging. So the way you live your life is the one thing you do control. Um, and it's things like, you know, I've been teaching myself Japanese borrow embroidery to repair my jeans because um, I like crafts. So a bit of craftivism. I read cli-fi for fun. Um, and uh, I've also got a stonking end of the world playlist with every environmental disaster you can think of, <laughs> including a string quartet version of the Kyoto Protocol to the Framework Convention on Climate Change on it, because you've got to laugh. <laughs> um, do either of you fly? As in, not, not literally as the, as, the, as, the pi- as the pilots. Sorry, but like, yeah, do you get, do you get on planes? Yes more than I would like to. I offset, I've cut down my travel, particularly I use the pandemic as an excuse to do that. And actually one of the things that I really enjoyed about the pandemic was being able to do things like keynote conferences uh, in uh, Spain, where I had people from five continents in my sessions. People are now trying to ratchet up the travel again, understandably, because it's not the same, doing it online and that network building needs to be done. So Offsetting is very important. Finding um, credible offsetting is very important. Trying not to travel when you can avoid it or fly when you can avoid it. But for me, I have to fly to see family. Otherwise, it takes me two days each way. So, you know, it's a really difficult one. There are compromises to be made. But then again, I don't drive. I use public transport. I shop locally. So uh, one of the things I actually, get, again, get my students to do to bring home the personal side of it, I get everybody to do a carbon footprint um, uh, test and come in with their findings on it in terms of where, where we fit in. And, uh, you know, we talk about things like travel, personal travel. I don't fly for holidays anymore, for example, other than to see family once every two years because I've cut that down. And that's really thought provoking. But that started to make me think when I started doing it about the need to make sure that I'm making the best choices I can make. I don't like flying, so <laughs> so it makes it quite easy to avoid flying. Um, but I, w- I have, you know, I have been on a plane and I will go on a plane mostly for, and when I think back, it has been for um, work trips. I haven't flown to go on holiday for, for a number of years. Um, but yeah, it does make it easier when you don't like flying. So. One of the problems of being an international <laughs> environmental lawyer is a lot of the things I do yeah. require it. But, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I just wonder if there's a, there's a, I assumed you both would say that you have either cut down on it or, mm. or don't. But is there a tension here with, you know, academic types, I suppose, saying basically that people should think about not going, I don't know, to their Spanish summer holiday every year? People who probably save up for it and and don't have a huge amount of pleasure pleasure in life, and that is one of the things they really enjoy doing. There, there are there are there. Are, I sense sometimes there are tensions here in this topic, aren't there? There are, and you know nobody's living a perfect life. It's making the most positive choices you can. And, um, you know, I do not drive. I don't own a car. I've never owned a car, but I made that as a deliberate decision as one thing I could do. It makes my life very inconvenient. Uh, the commute can be hell, particularly with strikes, broken trains, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but me, yeah. <laughs> exactly, I know I speak of a pain uh, many people know, but it's, but it's a deliberate choice. But it's one that actually, even in the context of working in the university, takes a lot of working around. Public transport in South uh, Wales is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something I feel quite strongly about in terms of, uh, again, gender. Most of the people you see on public transport, certainly on buses in and around Swansea, if you look, are women. Uh, uh, lots of students. So it's a really negative impression in terms of our uh, TripAdvisor reviews, apparently. Um, and working class people. And public transport in the UK is expensive. 
proportionate to what you get, mm. and it's inconvenient. It needs to be a lot better on all scores. Yeah, I think there's a. I mean, gosh, there's a huge philosophical discussion to have about about all of that, isn't there? But, but the we, perfect is the enemy of the good. Is uh, the line here? You do what you can. Yeah, I suppose it's different for all of us. I suppose if you've got young people listening to this who are interested in this topic and they want to get into specifically into your lines of work, into the kind of I guess the law, the environmental law side of things, what advice would you give them? Um, Karen, do you want to go first? Well informed. Um, in terms of um, looking to good media sources, et cetera, to see where the issues are. Um, that's where you choose your motivation for how you're going to specialise. Take every opportunity you have and you are given to use your voice because not everybody has it. Um, protest if you feel the need to protest. That is a basic human right and not one that's faring well in the UK at the minute. And know that what you do counts. So what you choose to study, if you've got options in environmental law, in nature conservation, in human rights, in ethics, these are important things to actually tool yourself up to um, take your career and use it to make a difference. And you can. Yeah, I'm often asked by law students, you know, how to get into environmental law. And I do, and I say the same thing, you know, you really need to take an interest in the subject. You need to go out there and do some voluntary work with one of these charitable organisations that are working for environmental protection understand the problems, understand the issues. And that can be a good foundation then for moving on and, and getting into this area of work. And, you know, if you are offered the opportunity to study some form of environmental law, then that's, you know, a, a really good idea as well. But if that's not a possibility, then you can go away and you can find out these things for yourself, as you said. Thank you both. Thank you. If you want to find out more about Karen and Victoria's research, you can visit their staff profile pages on Swansea University's website. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening. And thank you once again to my guests, uh, Professor Karen Morrow and Dr. Victoria Jenkins. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow us. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.